I'm excited to be here again today with Ryan. And uh, we are going to be talking about The Mind of the Maker by Dorothy Sayers. This is going to be part three. Actually, it's sort of part four because we had an introdu introductory, introductory one too. But um, specifically chapter seven and eight. Chapter seven is, the title of it is The Maker of All Things and the Maker of Ill Things. So basically she's talking about the what do you do with the issue of good and evil? And then in chapter eight, she's talking about Pentecost, which um, when she talks about these things, she's coming at them purely from the approach of how do these ideas affect us when we're thinking about making things as humans, making a book or making a painting or something like that. Um, so before we get started, I'm going to bounce an idea off you that I heard this weekend at church and um, the kind of the way that it put together in my head and, and then see if we can tie this in. Okay. Um, the, the teacher was standing up front and talking and happened to be a woman and she was talking about um, this idea of the hunger for righteousness. And okay. she was saying that we all have an, an intrinsic hunger for righteousness. We're born with it, basically. <clears throat> and you know you have the hunger for righteousness. I mean, we're not conscious of it, but you can kind of prove to yourself that you have the hunger for righteousness because we all experience, or probably most of us experience, this idea of the imposter syndrome. Right. And how would you have any inkling that, you feel like an imposter if you didn't have some picture of what was what you were supposed to be, right? Mm. If you didn't have some right. picture of the ideal or of, of your telos or, or where you're supposed to be headed, um, you'd have no idea that you were an imposter. So that kind of shows that we have this hunger for righteousness. And um, when she said that, I mean, she sort of just skipped right past it while she was talking. So it lodged in my brain and I sort of cogitated on that during right. the, rest of the message. And I thought about it for a couple of hours, trying to figure out what exactly was she trying to say there? And uh, I remembered Jordan Peterson talking about how, when you have an ideal, the ideal is always necessarily a judge. Mm -hmm. Because when you look up to this ideal, whether it's a sports figure or a King or whatever it is, you're necessarily always measuring yourself against that ideal. Right. It's not so much that they are judging you, but just by virtue of our need to be somebody, we're always judging ourselves against those who are higher up than we are. And that can, that can be a good thing if you're using that judgment to to strive for something good, but it can also be a bad thing if that judgment is immobilizing you and keeping you from achieving things because of, you know, getting down on yourself or whatever the terminology is now. Right. And, and, and then I was also thinking about this idea that the law intensifies sin. Mm. Right. Because, right. Because the law makes us aware of um, how far we fall short and because of our nature, we tend to rebel against the law. And so that just intensifies the sin. 
And that whole thing in my head <clears throat> um, just made me think about how in the garden, Eve chose, Eve had this hunger for righteousness because that's the way we're built. God built us that way so that we would desire to have a relationship with him. But she chose to fill that hunger for righteousness with um, the knowledge of good and evil instead of filling it with companionship with God. Mm. That's sort of what I was thinking about. Yeah. Like, when you were first starting to talk about like um, <clears throat> imposter syndrome and stuff, I was thinking like, actually the same, the same thought about Peterson popped in my head. Like, are you aiming for the highest, thing you can conceive of or you know i think with imposter syndrome i see a lot of people aiming for something immediate this kind of comparison this envy driven comparison thing which is actually like pretty different right and it's going to lead to different results um and you know i, I find that interesting like i've got I've, I've got a friend um in my industry who you know, we'll, we'll talk about this kind of thing sometimes. And he's, he's kind of in that place where I think he's feeling maybe crippled by anxiety because I think a lot of, a lot of his um, sense of, you know, his own imposter syndrome thing is coming from comparison with others and feeling like, like he's not measuring up to where they're at. Um, but yeah, and then if we talk about like, okay, well, what's the ultimate goal or what's the ultimate purpose or where are we all trying to head? It's like, it gets real fuzzy because it's like, I don't know, I'm just comparing myself with all the people around me and trying to get on top of that pile, you know? And so that's kind of interesting to me. Um, well, I was thinking about imposter syndrome. There, I think there's a that's good and a that's bad about it. If you, if you struggle with imposter syndrome and you end up with crippling anxiety, obviously that's a, that's bad, but, right. but there is a sense in which let's say you get hired into a job that's just beyond your capacity and you, you don't know how to do what they're asking you to do. Right. right. And so you're going to have a kind of imposter syndrome, man, how did I get here? And I don't know how to do this. And this is going to be all bad. But in a way, nobody knows how to do the next thing. I don't care who you are or what your job is. Everybody is always asked to do things that haven't been done before. And when those things come up for you, because the future is the unknown, you just have to try something. And then that's Jordan Peterson with his aim for the highest good. And then that little thing keeps moving like the the bouncing ball following the the lyrics in a song on the screen you know you have to keep you have to keep re-aiming as you're going because that that goal is going to keep moving in your field of, of vision so in a sense nobody everybody is an imposter because we don't know how to do the unknown but that's also what builds the future, because if people weren't trying things that have never been tried before, they wouldn't invent things. They wouldn't create things. There wouldn't be new things that didn't exist before. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm sure the guy well, that came up with the railroad engine, for example, he didn't know what he was doing at first. You know, you just. Or, or Edison with his 10,000 tries at a at a 
light bulb. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I I was struck by something in our first conversation where I was kind of um, I was giving this very pessimistic rant about how technology keeps building on top of itself, and I was calling it a Tower of Babel, you know. And then I think you're giving a little bit of gentle pushback to like, well, that is one way to see it, but also there is good can emerge and it's a similar structure it's this you're standing on the shoulder of giants right i've been thinking about that some because that uh i don't know i was just struck by that like to me yeah it feels like it's the same structure in both situations but and so then what is the difference you know and in in one case you've got this thing that it is an emergent building up but it's building up towards something that's it's unholy or it's wrong in some manner or you've got this good emergence of like things are getting better things are improving right and so, i mean as far as i can tell the only real difference is like yeah if it's building up to something what is it building up to and is that something that that it ought to be building up to or is it not um you know and, I, I, and, and you were talking earlier about like um like like um judgment um Dorothy Sayers starts off chapter eight, quoting Christ, saying, you know, if you reject, if you reject my words, I don't judge you. The words themselves will judge you, which is like a, like a strange thing to say. And you can kind of write it off as this kind of a poetic whatever. But like she starts off the chapter making the point that, no, I mean, word becomes incarnate, not just like the literal Christ's incarnation, but like also all of our words, they manifest in ways. And those manifestations have results and everyone sees the results. It'll be shouted from the rooftops, right? Like we will all see the manifestation of all of our words and that itself will be the judgment. And the judgment will not be this arbitrary, you know, like we talked about last time, it's not an arbitrary clipboard thing. It's just, here's what emerged. And was it, was it proper or was it not? You know, there, there was it, was it according to the way things ought to be or was it not according to the way things ought to be? And it's, yeah, it's it's not an arbitrary judgment. It's just a, I, I don't know. I still struggle with, with words for all this. It, it just is what it is. And it, there is an oddness to everything. And I, I guess, and I guess that's what I've been thinking about as I've been reading this book. It's like, it all seems to come back to like, you know, whether it's with God, with his creation or us with our creations, like art, or even my computer programs, it's like there is an oddness to everything. And if things are moving and emerging towards their oughtness, their telos, their purpose, whatever, that is good. But if they're just kind of emerging and moving and, and whatever, then then that's not good, I guess. Something like that, right? Yeah, and this is where it gets into that very wiggly word intention, right? Because, you know, I mean, the road to hell is paved on good intentions. So you can't, you can't just say because your intentions are good, you're necessarily going to be moving towards the right ought um, or the right oughtness. Um, well, let, let's dig in a little bit to, to chapter seven, where she, um, I'm not going to start right at the beginning because it's a little bit, um, a little bit more philosophical, but, but um she does say she, she's exploring this idea of good and evil and where does evil come from 
And then she starts in and she says, um, here again, we must issue a warning at the start. For her purposes, evil is not considered moral evil. She's talking about evil in the process of human creation. So the human maker living and walking within a universe where evil is part of the nature of things is obliged to take both good and evil as part of his idea. They are the medium with which he works. That's really all we have in this world is good and evil. So when you're writing a book, there's going to be a good guy. There's going to be a bad guy. Um, people have written books without bad guys, but it doesn't make much of a story, right? <laughs> so yeah. um, we can only consider the special type of evil, which may make its appearance in connection with this particular act of creation. The type, which is briefly summed up in the expression, bad art. In the choice of words, for example, the right word will not be the morally edifying word, but the word which rightly embodies his idea, whether the idea itself is morally good, evil, or beyond good and evil. And that really struck me that, that there can be a right word. Um, probably poets end up here more often even than um, novelists although i mean people like peterson always says he rewrites every sentence 50 times because he wants to get it exactly right uh-huh right but in in order to say that's the right word what you're actually saying is that every other possible word is wrong in that context so you've drawn a line between good and bad right there right And so, like, in that context, wrong. Like, you, you were talking about this a little bit last time with, you know, talking about, like, there's a right color for the place. What, what like, in your experience as an artist, like, what, what, does that, what does that mean? Does it mean there's a right color that, that makes it fit the idea that's in your head? Or, or do you mean something else? Well, I think there's a lot of layers there. Um, there's a there's an there's an overall idea that could be executed any number of ways. There would be any number of ways that could be right ways to execute that idea, to manifest that idea on a canvas. Um, but whatever way you get started with, once you make the first stroke, you're on a path. And you've made some color decisions very early on in the painting as to what the, uh, what the palette is going to be and what the color harmonies are gonna be. That, that takes shape pretty quickly in the painting. So after that, then the choices that you make have to fit that shape that you've started with. And Maybe early on you've made some decisions just in the way that you're painting that this painting is going to have a, a dominance of, um, let's say, line. Line is going to create the structure of this painting. So then you've made, you've made a decision. Every time you make a decision, it narrows your choices. Mm. And I'm getting some weird sound in the background. Is, that, is your phone... Um, touching something or is it me? Might be. Me. Try moving it. 
Hmm? See if this is any better. Okay. Um, so anyway, let's let's say that I have my palette chosen and, and now I'm gonna pick up some paint and put it on the painting in a particular place, let's say where I want my focal point to be or something. Whether the choice is right or not depends on what it's sitting next to, because everything is connected to the context. So let's say I need some area to be, um, I need some area to look dark. Then what I want to put next to it is something light. <laughs> I know that sounds right. really simple, but the way, the way that you intensify the appearance of the darkness is to put something lighter next to it or if you have something blue and you want to intensify the look of that blue you put something orange next to it or if you have something that's very uh, rough texture and you want to intensify that texture you're going to put something smooth next to it so you play with opposites it's um you know, Ian, McGill Ian McGilchrist is always talking about this coincidence of opposites and how opposites affect each other. She mm -hmm. talks about that quite a bit in the book here about how, for example, she says, and when she's talking about good and evil, like was evil created? She says, let's say, take for example, that Shakespeare wrote, wrote Hamlet. The minute Shakespeare wrote Hamlet, not Hamlet also exists. Right. Well, before Hamlet was written, not Hamlet also existed, but it would have been nonsensical to talk about not Hamlet because nobody knows what Hamlet is. But once right. Hamlet is written, then it's obvious to everybody that there is not Hamlet. So it's really a very simple idea that anything that is at the focal point of your attention means that everything else is not that thing. So if we're talking about ourselves and our telos, how do we know what direction to move? It's kind of like the whole uh, thing they talk about in economics, um, opportunity cost. If you make a choice, then whatever that choice is, that negates all other possible choices, mm. at least for that moment. If I make a choice to spend my $5 on this thing, I don't have that $5 to spend on something else. So, so if you think about your telos as being, now this, this gets a little confusing because let, could you say, you know, I didn't, I didn't fulfill my telos because I took the wrong direction because I made a choice and went down one path and that wasn't the right path. But see, I don't, I don't think God allows that to happen in our lives. If we've submitted our lives to him and we're allowing him to guide us because we might head down a wrong path, but he's going to find some way to um, wake us up to show us that we're on the wrong path so that we, we can come back and get into alignment, or he's gonna find some way to um, adjust things so that that path ends up being a, a useful and productive path. And right. so doing a painting is very much the same way. I might 
I might have had one idea for a painting and I get started on it and oops, that idea is not what's being executed here. It's some other in, idea entirely. But as mm -hmm. long as I'm faithful to the, the painting that I'm working with, as long as I love the painting as it is, I can always find a way to bring it to a satisfying completion. As long as I don't give up on it. There is right. It might not end up exactly the way it was intended to look at the beginning, but there is a way for it to be beautiful as long as I keep mm -hmm. loving it. And this might be a hard turning to a topic you don't want to go into, but like a question I've always had about, you know, let's say the, the, the telos of all things, you know, the end of revelation, things are made right, there's judgment. Tears are wiped away. It's the end of the story. Then what? Like, because stories are compelling when there's conflict, when there's light and darkness, right? When when there's movement towards something good. But once you're there, once you've achieved and arrived at the ultimate good, what then? You know? And I think, you know, I, I imagine this is kind of where that, that, the image of like people just kind of sitting around on clouds playing harps emerged because it, it does become hard to conceive of yeah what what then you know and i think c.s lewis tries to get at this like in the great divorce you know he's kind of painting this picture of i mean there's there's movement into some kind of grand new indescribable adventure you know in this beautiful mountainscape and it's like okay that's at least a, a visual I can latch on to, but like, what does that mean? You know, if all the conflict has been wiped away, but conflict is what brings, or let's say struggle towards something good is what brings meaning. What then will be bringing meaning? You know, I mean, and. Okay, so I think about that often. And yeah. when you first started asking the question, what went through my head was, okay, let's stop here. <laughs> but, but as she kept talking, I got more hopeful. Um, okay. Because I think I'm thinking about like when I watch, uh, when I watch a TV series or something, you know, a Netflix series. There are times when I just get so tired of the idea that there always has to be a bad guy. Can't we have a show without a bad guy? Mm -hmm. And I think it's possible because you can have struggle towards a good goal without having to have a bad guy get in there and make it even worse. It's already hard enough <laughs> to get to your good goal just by trying to let, let's say, Let's say we have eternity to um, to all be together, and part of that being together is is being in communion with God, which is going to be very beautiful, and to be worshiping and to be in communion with others who are worshiping. But we also right. are all going to have tasks, and in order to do those tasks, we're going to have to learn many things because we're not going to be just because we're in heaven or, you know, whatever we're going to call this place does not mean that we are 
omnipotent and omniscient, I'm still going to be Karen. You know, mm-hmm. the tears wiped away and, 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 you know, hopefully young and beautiful and all that, but, but, but I'm still going to be me, which means that whatever knowledge I have when I get into heaven, that's it. And I, and in order to, to accomplish the tasks that are laid before me, I'm going to have to learn and grow and develop. And there are endless number of things to learn and to grow and to develop into. And there's going to be endless opportunities for worship and maybe even writing worship music and singing worship music and, and um, building building mansions for the people who are to come and you know whatever whatever that is whatever is is involved there because we are all going to have tasks and and i think that's pretty clear from the scripture that we all will have jobs in heaven but 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 there won't be the bad guys that are creating the the second and third and fourth level of difficulty of achieving things so I don't think it's going to be boring. I mean, I don't think it's going to be sitting around on harps. Yeah. <laughs> and probably there's going to, it's not going to be like Silicon Valley where you're working 24 seven and trying to all this achievement and all that. It's going to be plenty of time to sit around on grassy hillsides and have meaningful conversations with people. <laughs> right. And, and plenty yeah. of banquets and, and uh, opportunities to serve and, and all of those things, you know, I like the way you're describing that because, like, I think in my head it's easy for me to conflate two categories. Like, it's pain and struggle. You know, the things that will be rid of this new creation is different from striving and effort and uh, the work, basically, right? And I guess this is kind of what people mean when they talk about, you know, work was in the garden before sin right it's like there there can be an eternal or you know i I guess i'm I'm even thinking about like my day-to-day job right now it's like a lot of my a lot of my work is very pleasurable it's like i enjoy it and it is distinct from the times when things are broken that's a different kind of work and it would be great if that never happened yeah maybe i i guess yeah that does help me kind of i can conceive of a world where things wouldn't be broken in that way, but I'm still having to strive and make efforts to create, eternally creating. We're all eternally creating. We're all eternally engaging, loving, speaking, writing, doing whatever we're tasked with doing to the glory of God, right? Yeah. Something like that. And and there's going to be plenty of time to serve each other and, um, and all of those things. Um, and I know N.T. Wright talks about, um, N.T. Wright says that it's a mistake to think of heaven as being something that happens after death, which, I mean, I fully agree with that because the scripture talks about that once once you are in Christ, you are a citizen of heaven. You are sitting, seated with him in the heavenly. You know, so right now we're seated with him in the heavenlies. And um, there there are ways to live right now that are more like heaven than hell right now. 
And one of the things that um, she talks about in chapter eight, when she's talking about Pentecost, is this idea of how do you redeem um, difficulty and pain and suffering? And I was also listening to a little short video clip of her talking about this, that and she was making that video clip during the Second World War, when obviously all the people in England were on rations and they were having to cut way back on um, gas and oil for heating and for lights. And life was challenging on a daily basis, lots and lots of challenge. And she said, there's no question that war is evil and that, that all the things that happen in this war are evil. But the way that we who are home can redeem that evil is by patiently submitting to the difficulties and challenges that are arising because of that evil occurring. So I thought that was a really interesting idea that it's all in your context in how you, um, how you react in a situation, which, I mean, obviously that's something that therapists are always talking about. But I was thinking about this in the context of, say, Mary and Martha. You know, mm-hmm. Martha's rushing around and serving and all of that. And she 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 takes a hard hit sometimes by people who are saying, oh, she's just rushing around and all busy, but Mary's doing the right thing. Yes, Mary is doing the right thing. But those folks needed to be served, right? I mean, the people were there. They were hungry. They needed to be served. But part of Martha's problem was the reason it was a heavy burden for her was that she was resentful about it. Right. She felt like other people aren't stepping up and helping me. But if you can imagine in heaven, we're not going to struggle with that side of ourselves. We can serve with joy. We could do that right now, but it requires growth to get there, right. (laughs) To be able to serve with joy and without resentment. But if you can serve with joy and result without resentment and be thinking about the, the, the glory of these people who are receiving the service and, and, um, and how much they're enjoying it and appreciating it, and you can be thinking about that in terms of redeeming your own effort and everything, then it becomes heaven, even though what you're doing is working and doing something when everybody else is sitting around listening. Mm-hmm. See what I'm saying? So it it really has to do with context. Now, I'm not saying I'm there. I'm just saying, I think I get the drift of what it can look like. And I'd like to head for that. That makes sense. I don't know if this is related at all, but the question that popped in my head is like, what? What exactly is resentment? What is what? Resentment. Resentment. Um, Well, as opposed to, are you saying that it's very similar to a lot of other words and you'd like to just, you'd like me to distinguish it from some other word? Okay, I guess like, like fundamentally like what what is like let's let, let's say martha's problem in that story was resentment fundamentally 
Is it that she is wanting to be sitting down listening or wanting others to be working? Is it, is, I, I, don't, I don't know if this even makes any sense, what I'm thinking. Well, what she said in the in the story, because we could look it up, I guess, so that we could quote it right. And I'm not saying that that I'm not saying that Jesus said that her problem was resentment. I'm saying that right. I'm when right. I'm putting myself in her place, one of my problems would definitely be resentment. But what she said was something like, Lord, can you talk to Mary and tell her that I've got all this work to do? And instead of sitting there, she should be out here helping me. It was something like that. Right. Right. So, so the resentment that I picture is I probably would get started pretty well be thinking, oh, I'm so happy to, that they're all here and I get to serve them and I'm working in the kitchen. And then, well, wait a minute, mm -hmm. Mary gets to sit out there and just listen. And how come I'm in here working? <laughs> you know, and then pretty soon it's all about right. me. And then I even go so far as to ask the Lord, can you talk to her and get her in here to help me? And it was at that point that he said, Mary has chosen the better part. Um, you are, you are, but you know, I don't think he was um, dissing her at all. When he says, Martha, Martha, I think that's done with the great love and affection. <laughs> Martha, <Yeah>. Martha, <laughs> you know, I, I love you, but you're rushing around here and, uh, Mary has chosen the better part, and I'm not going to take that away from her. So um, it, it's kind of the same story as the prodigal son and the son who stayed behind the other the other prodigal. That's right? exactly what I was like. It seems that whatever this is is a common theme throughout a lot of Jesus's stories. You know, the, yeah, the resentment of the older brother and the prodigal son story, or um, the resentment of the laborers who worked much longer in the field but received the same pay. Um, or even, you know, you can kind of extract out like the resentment of the Jews towards the Gentiles. You know, it's like we have labored to try to obey and understand God's laws for many generations. This is our culture. This is our thing. And now this is being, you know, hands out to everyone at very low cost to them, even though it's been incredibly high cost to us. There's a sense of injustice, you know, or sensed injustice. And um, I don't know, and then, you know, just to transparently, I guess the reason this popped up in my head is because I, yeah, I struggle with some resentment of my own. You know, it, it can be about whatever, just things that feel like, man, this is harder for me than it seems like it is for other people. And that's not fair. You know, and, and I just I find myself thinking often about this theme in all of Jesus's stories. And I guess that's why I picked up on it when we we're talking about Mary and Martha, because like, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of like Martha. I'm kind of like the older brother, you know, and, you know, sometimes I'll do this thought experiment about like, you know, I don't think this is reality, but. If. If I were to get to the day of judgment and I find out that all of my enemies are going to be utterly, totally forgiven of everything in every way they've ever hurt me, what, what would I feel? You know, would I be um, would I be able to enjoy God's just judgment in that? 
or would I still be resentful? You know what I mean? And it's like, obviously, okay, at that point, you know, God has wiped away the tears and has probably addressed whatever heart issues gone on there. But like, just for the sake of the thought experiment, it's like, you know, I guess all I'm really saying is, yeah, I, 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 sometimes I'm aware of these deep issues in myself and, you know, I'm sure other people have similar stuff, but it's like, it, I guess it gets me thinking about what fundamentally is salvation, you know, and where is all this headed? I don't think it's just getting a ticket into Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. You know, it's, it's, these things have to be extracted from me. There has to be, I, I guess what people would call sanctification, you know, movement towards something. Ryan has to become the proper Ryan, the way Ryan always ought to have been, which is get rid of the resentment, get rid of the junk, whatever that is, you know. Um, it's like sometimes I get a little glimpse of that vision, and it's really beautiful. Um, but a lot of times I just I can't capture it for long. You know, and I and I guess the reason it pops in my head in this conversation is is you know thinking about creating art or even creating computer programs or whatever. It's like yeah, there is this. Sometimes I get this glimpse when I'm working on my computer programs of like, oh, in ten years, if we really do the right stuff architecturally over time, this could be incredible, you know. Um, but then right here, right now, this is where we're at. And it's not, and it's not that, you know, there's a big gap between those things. And I, I imagine maybe you feel something similar as an artist sometimes. Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, and one of the things that I was taught that I, I really appreciate the idea, it's harder to put into practice. And I mean, the idea is pretty clear, but it's very challenging to put into practice, but it's super important, I think. And that is that the seeds of your next painting are lying in the painting that you've just completed. So, but what that really means is not that you look at this painting and you think, oh, I'm going to do another one like this, or I'm going to get my idea for my next painting here. No, no, no. It's where did you, where did this painting fail? Where were the problems? What were the things that, um, I mean, you can look at where, what are the strengths? Certainly, you know, what, what's good about this one, but where are the problems? And because those problems can be addressed in the next painting. And in order to address those problems, you have to learn something. So you have to go out and acquire some new skills, maybe in a lot of areas. And you have to paint a lot more so that you can develop those skills and, you know, lots and lots of brush mileage. And, um, and also, with each painting, your your style becomes more and more you. you. You you understand more and more what about this is me and what about this is not me. And so the part that's not me can get carved away. The part that's me can move forward into the next painting. So over time, you're developing this style. Over time, you're developing skills. Over time, your work is taking on more and more of... Um, the rightness, you know, the, the telos that's in your head about what, what you want your work to reflect. And um, I'm imagining coding is very much like that. Because I think so. when, when you write, when you write for something, 
don't you look at that and say, you know, next time I could make it more efficient with fewer loops or, you know, I don't know the right lingo, but I could find a way to make it take less time and I could find a way to more elegantly um, mm -hmm. find the solution and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and like you were talking about earlier, like the way you're actually describing starting a painting, um, I thought was funny because it's exactly the same way I would describe a program. It's like every decision, it's like if I have something I'm trying to create, you know, a certain website or uh, uh, anything, it's like there, there are infinitely many ways I could go about doing that, you know. It's just this incredibly massive set of possibilities. And then you start somewhere, you know, and that limits your possibilities. And then every decision is this kind of limiting thing, you know, and you, you end up kind of funneling down to your style, your way of structuring things, your way of thinking about stuff, which, you know, if, if someone else was doing the same exact project, you would end up with very different results. They might look the same, they might function the same, but structurally, they would probably be, at least on some level, very different. Um, not necessarily worse or better, although sometimes, you know, there is a kind of mastery that comes to it that's hard to put into words. It's, it's something you kind of just, you can just tell when you're looking at someone who's good at this. Um, and yeah, it's a very, it's a labor of love, you know, it's like there's a, You have to care deeply about what you're producing and you have to in some sense want it to become what it should be i'm not even entirely sure what i mean by that but you know like in my in my job i've been working on this one program for eight years now and it's like transparently when i first started i thought it was i didn't like it that much you know i didn't really love it you know and nowadays i like i enjoy it I, I know the structure of it very intimately. I have watched it evolve. I've watched it grow, you know? Mm -hmm. I remember when it was just a little kid and now it's a teenager and, you know, it's kind of annoying sometimes, but I, I love it. And I, it's, it's, it's hard to describe. I feel weird saying that out loud. I've never said that out loud before, but it's like, that's what it is, you know? And, and I, yeah, it gives me a lot to think about in terms of, god's relationship to us because i you know yeah i think he i i mean i i imagine maybe he has similar feelings towards us and this this deep longing for us to become what he knows we can and will become you know and, and the joy he might get out of seeing that emerge you know I don't know. It's just like I talked about it, uh, in one of our previous conversations. It's just such a different vision of God and who He is than than I had as a kid, you know. Um, and I'm that's not necessarily anyone's fault. You know, to some degree, maybe it was the culture I grew up in, but you know, but also maybe it was just me and my own fears, you know. And and now I'm I feel like I'm finally discovering this God who actually loves, you know. And I've been told about this God who loves for years and years and years, but it's like. I think I'm starting to get it and it's different, you know, mm -hmm. and it's good. Well, and so, so often story can crystallize that for us, right? 
have, have you happened to see this movie called The Atom Project? I haven't. I'm a sci-fi buff, so but there's only a certain category of sci-fi movies that I really like. And the Adam project just hit right in the zone for me. But, um, but there's this beautiful scene at the end of the Adam project. It's, it's a time travel movie and um, sort of time and space travel at the same time. I mean, the time travel ship travels just like a spaceship, but then it goes through a time wormhole and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, Adam comes back from the future to try to rescue his wife who got lost in the past, but he accidentally stumbles onto a time period when his own self was 12 years old. And that was his most hated time of life because he was always being bullied and he felt like he was so stupid back then and just didn't have the right words and didn't know how to stand up for himself. And he had no patience with his 12 year old self. But he ends up having to hang out with his 12-year-old self all through this, this movie. Yeah. And, and then he had a lot of resentment towards his father because his father put all of his time into his project, which was actually creating time travel, um, which then got turned into something really malevolent and in the future was destroying the world. So Adam comes back. He, he decides that what he needs to do is destroy the possibility of time travel, even if it means that he himself dies and his wife dies and everything else, because the possibility of time travel has destroyed the future. Okay. So he has all this resentment against his father, but, but in the end, the father, they end up going, the father had partly he, the reason he had the resentment is that his father died when he was, uh, 11. So the 12 year old has already lived one year without his father, but he still remembers his father as being a good and loving man. But the 40 year old version of himself grew up without his dad. And so he had all this resentment against his dad for dying. And uh, plus resentment against him for what he thought was putting too much time into his career. And then creating this monster of time travel, which just destroyed the future. But at the very end, it's just so perfect because the 40-year-old Adam looks down at his 12-year-old brother and he says, you know, I've hated you my whole life, but now I realize you're the best part of me. (laughs) And and then his father reaches over to 40-year-old Adam and puts his hands on his face and says, Adam, I just need you to know I love you. And Adam's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I love you. I have always loved you. I loved you from the day I saw you being born. I loved you from the moment you were created and came into the world. And you you are my son. And I love you. And he keeps trying to get away, you know, but finally he just breaks down and sobbing in his father's arms. It's just a perfect perfect i mean obviously it's a time travel thing so both sons disappear in that moment because they're in the father's time and not in their own time and so once time travel is destroyed then both the sons evaporate but first there's this perfect moment (laughs) when they when they come to this realization yeah that whether you're an adolescent 
whether you're whether you're a mature painting, an adolescent painting, <laughs> an adolescent code or whatever, you know, the the uh, the father loves you. And the father isn't going to give up on you. Now, in this case, the father happened to die rather young. And so he wasn't able to be there for his son growing up. But when he had the opportunity, he wanted to be sure that his boy knew. I love you. You are deeply loved because without that, he never feels complete. He never knows, mm-hmm. you know, and oftentimes we can't get that from our own parents. I mean, I never had that from my dad ever, but, but that's one of the beauties about knowing our heavenly father is that he can give us that intensity of love. And the way that he reveals that love to us is, is through him coming to earth as a man and, and living and dying and, you know, the, the pattern of the cross in his life and death and resurrection reveals to us the depth of his love for us. So, you know, I can feel there's times I can just feel his hands on my face. (laughs) So one time that I was taking a class from this creativity guru, and he talked about how every painting goes through an adolescent period when you just want to rip the thing up and throw it away. And I have certainly experienced that when I just think, I don't know what to do next. It's not cooperating. I'm fed up with it. I'm just going to walk away from it. But he said, that's the very moment at which you need to look at that painting and say out loud, even if you feel like a fool, I love you painting. I love you. (laughs) And then you're going to persist and you're not going to give up on that painting. And so I was thinking about that one day and I was thinking, you know, there's so many times that I want to give up on myself. And I, I went to the mirror in the bathroom and I looked into my own eyes in the mirror, which I had never done before. Because when you look at yourself in the mirror, you're just looking at your face usually or your body. But to look into your own eyes and see your own soul. I looked into my own eyes and I said, I love you, Karen. I'm not going to give up on you. And uh, I do that periodically, even though it sounds absolutely ridiculous. But there's something about it to say, I guess it's the thing that, Jordan Peterson says, you know, treat yourself as though you're somebody worth caring for. You take better care of your dog than you take care of yourself. You know, you make sure your dog eats healthy food. You make sure your dog gets two walks a day. You make sure that your dog um, get takes their medication on time and gets their vitamins and all of that. And you're, you don't follow through on that stuff for yourself, but you need to treat yourself as though you're somebody worth caring for. And that's the meaning of that verse. I mean, this is Jordan Peterson's meaning of the verse. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you don't love yourself properly, you're not going to know how to love your neighbor. The only way you know how to love your neighbor is if you know what love looks like. Yeah. Right. Which is different than like pumping yourself up, I think, or being proud of yourself or 
Yeah, that, that's what I was actually just thinking about as you're describing that. Because like as sorry, as you were describing it, it was like, man, this this what what Karen is saying is deeply beautiful to me and moving. But I think only because I know that for her, this is rooted in something transcendent and beautiful and good, which is the Christ of all creation, right? The God of all creation. And when I hear the same kind of thing from someone who doesn't have that kind of rooted transcendent thing, it just falls flat to me. It's like, again, it's like, yeah, it's, it's, that sounds more like this just sort of power of battle. You're just striving for something, but what are you even striving for? What is, you, what is even this goal? Just to not suffer, which is like not a bad thing, obviously, but, but what is, yeah, there's just something that feels missing about that. And it, it um, no, I think that's a real insight because so much of what we say in Christianity it, to the world sounds like a cliche. Mm -hmm. That language mm -hmm. has been co-opted and filtered down into, you know, psychotherapy and um, counseling and oprah and you know i mean there are just um dr phil they all use the same language but depending on what your substructure is and what what the whole world that lies underneath that like you know i had a conversation with gavin ashenden last week maybe two weeks ago where we were talking about what does it mean to love the poor and he said, don't even use that word love. He said, it's been completely ruined by the world. Well, I can't go that far because love is the only word we've got to describe, yeah. you know, God is love and we're told to love one another and love our neighbors and all this. So that love is the only word we've got. So right. we have to invest that word with some deeper sense of what it means and not just intellectually what it means but how it's acted out and um make, makes me think about how when i lived in japan i was a missionary there it was so difficult to teach the gospel to people who weren't part of the church or had never heard about god because in japanese the language just doesn't it, it doesn't accommodate god at all in 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 Japanese, there are no capital letters. Everything is the same case. So God and God are the same. God and gods are the same. There's no and there's no single and plural. So when you talk about God, it could be talking about gods. There's six thousand kitchen gods or something in Japan. And um so, so if you're going to talk about God, you always have to have a qualifier. God the one who loves you and who created the universe out of nothing. Every right. time you use a word, you have to stretch it out. Mm. And I, I kind of think we've gotten to the place in trying to explain these things to each other that we need to give shape to every word that we use. Right. Yeah. So love your neighbor as yourself by being willing to lay down your life for them or love your neighbor as yourself by um, 
serving them by washing their clothes or by giving them a drive to, you know, what, whatever, whatever that means, you know, um, love the poor by trying to understand how they got there and what their true need is and helping them to, to find another path or, you know, we have to flesh things out because if we just use, if we just use the Bible verse now, it doesn't seem, especially I think the big problem is that the word itself has power. So if you quote the scripture, there's power in it, but if you paraphrase it, it's easily open to misinterpretation, right? Well, that, that's exactly what I was just thinking about as you were saying that, because I, I personally am fond of um, certain people who are, who are doing the kind of thing you're talking about, starting to try to use other language. You know, the, 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 the Dallas Willards and the Ortbergs and the Eugene Petersons of the world who are, who, who are trying to express things maybe differently than they've been expressed in recent years. Um, but then, like I've talked about in our previous conversations, I've got some friends who feel very staunchly that, like, no, that stuff is bad because you're you're taking the the the, the word itself and you are changing it to something else, and it loses its power. It loses its meaning. It loses its structure. It loses its what it is. God gave it to us in this form. I mean, obviously, there's a whole can of worm conversations there because it's been translated into English. Yeah, all that stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't necessarily care to get into that, but like, yeah, I mean, I, to, your, to your point, it does feel like culturally we're at a place where things need to be expressed in ways that maybe not the way they've been expressed in the past. And that's why, I, you know, personally, I think that's why people, at least partially, have been drawn to like Jordan Peterson, Paul Vanderclay, these types of people who, um, they're at least attempting to do the, that in their own way. You know what I mean? And I, people do find it compelling. You know? It's like... You sort of took me by surprise there. I didn't know there were any Dallas Willard detractors. He's so... <laughs> he's such a lovely... I mean, I know he's no longer with us, but he's such a lovely man. I can't imagine anybody being against him. <laughs> yeah, we, we did a... Well, we did a book club. I, I did a book club with some of these friends, and, and they, they just... They hated it. Um, I don't even remember why, to be honest. Oh, really? I, honestly, part of it was just because, yeah, he's expressing things in language that we wouldn't normally use, um, or something. But yeah, I was surprised too. I was like, man, dude, come on, Willard's like, yeah, how can you not like it? Well, I mean, it's a standing but, joke in our church that you can't have a message without a Dallas Willard quote in it. Because- because, um, and, and here's something that happened today. I, I ran across this tweet from this guy who is a Orthodox Christian. And he actually does uh, counseling for people. Um, okay. Orthodox counseling for biblical, you know, biblical counseling for people who are of an Orthodox mindset. Right. And he wrote this longer tweet. It's a little bit long, but I'm going to read it because... As I read it, I thought, this is exactly the way I think, but 
I guess I'm not a typical Protestant because I've been surrounded with the Dallas Willards and the John Ortbergs of the world. And um, right. so <clears throat> he says, what we need isn't God's lack of forgiveness met with a payment of suffering. In other words, we don't need um, the picture that some people have is that God, God's wrath is paid for by Christ's crucifixion. So God is basically punishing himself for, um, for our wrongdoing. Okay, so... I think that's what he means there. What we need isn't God's lack of forgiveness met with a payment of suffering. He goes on to say, God is love and love keeps no record of wrong. That's God. Satan, on the other hand, is the accuser, the one who does not forgive and reminds us of how bad we are. He's the one that's always making us cognizant of our sin, right? God reminds us of how much we need him and that he is the source of all joy. His work on the cross isn't to repay a debt to himself, but to complete us. We need cleansing, which comes from his blood, just like blood cleans the effects of sin in the Old Testament. And we need life, which comes from Christ entering into death. So that when we enter into death, we find Christ there and are resurrected. Hence, now here's something he says. I, I don't know how I feel about this. He says, hence everyone, yeah. not just Christians, get resurrected. Now, I don't know if that's standard Eastern Orthodox teaching or not. I, sh I need to get an Orthodox um, person on here and ask some of these questions because I don't understand how all this works. But. And then he goes on, he says, and we need spiritual healing, which comes from bearing our own Christ crosses as Christ commands. What it means to bear our own cross means that our pride, our ego, and our self-centeredness is burned away, and we have nothing left but God. Suffering empties out the heart of its pride, and prayer calls Christ into that space, which is why we are told to rejoice to God in our trials. Um, I was taught very early on that you have a pitcher of water, and if it's full, you can't pour any more water in there. So that pitcher needs to keep getting poured out in order to mm -hmm. pour more in, which is a picture of why it's important that we serve and love others, because then we're always emptying ourselves out through that service and love so that there's space in us to be continually filled. But then there's also this picture of um, the smaller the vessel, the less that it can hold. So if, if there's me, and then if I'm solid, there's not much room uh -huh. in me to hold Christ. But if there's a little hollow part in me, you know, like the, the God-shaped hole in my heart, then that gets filled up with God. But if more and more of me can dissolve away, 
you know, my pride and my ego and all and my resentment and all those things that makes me more and more of a bigger vessel. So there's more space for Christ to fill me. So our sorrows and our trials kind of hollow us out so that we can be filled with him. Because, you know, in the scripture, it always says that he fills me, he grows up into me, he grows up into the fullness, he grows, he grows his fullness up into me, and I grow up into him. So right. it's kind of like, all that's left of me is like a glove. <laughs> but uh-huh. the power is in the hand, right? And yeah. And the hand is working inside this this glorious cosmos, but um, yeah. Anyway, that's not a very good picture. But this is the spiritual life the early church lived by: a therapeutic and practical life. And the purpose of dogma was to explain this life and guide it and put boundaries on it, which is why doctrine matters so much. In itself, the doctrine is just noise. But its purpose is to guide us to a life of marriage with God. And this marriage with God is salvation and it is heaven, be it in this life or the next. God isn't saving us from himself. He's saving us from us. I thought that was a good line. I mean, there's probably a lot of complicated doctrine in there that that I don't understand rightly. And so maybe this guy isn't 100% but um i really it resonated with me most of it really resonated with me yeah mm. god saves me yeah. from myself you know <clears throat> yeah <clears throat> yeah this is um <clears throat> i feel like i feel like dangerous territory for me cuz i i still i feel like it's going to take me years and years to formulate my my thoughts on all this but you know like like the church i was going to in college the pastor would say all the time uh god himself sent himself to save us from himself you know would say that explicitly you know and because yeah the penal substitution was the the main lens through which um salvation was viewed and i i always got the sense that yeah, it, it was a, I don't know how to put it, like it, not a telos, but an anti-telos or something. Like it wasn't a vision of what we're moving towards. It was simply a statement of what we're moving away from. And that was always the focus. And it's like, God did something about sin. Okay. Now what? It's like death without the resurrection or something. Obviously no one would, would have put it in those terms, but I, I think, I think, that sort of thing has stuck with me for years um, because I don't know why exactly. I mean, this is what I've been struggling to articulate um, even even with you talking about the, the arbitrary versus non-arbitrary stuff, you know, or even like when I, when I first stumbled across Dallas Willard, like I felt so just like he was tapping into something that I, that I deeply wanted, but it wasn't what it was. And I think I finally realized, like, once I started delving into a bit of philosophy, like his his focus was phenomenology, like experience, right? And so, and I think he he took that and used that very powerfully in all of his writing. You know, he's speaking not just 
words, not just claims and axioms and stuff, not just the propositional truth, but as a as someone deeply interested in phenomenology, he was speaking in terms of experience and all kinds of knowing. And he was even applying that kind of attitude towards understanding, you know, like the Sermon on the Mount in the Divine Conspiracy. And it, that just that just resonated so much with me when I read it. I didn't have words for it for a long time, but I'm, I'm starting to get words for it. And yeah, it boils down to the value of experience, I think. Um, and I don't know why. There's just something about my personal journey or story or whatever that like I I deeply value experience, and I deeply value knowing through experience, you know, and. It, there's times there's certain little subcultures that just don't seem to value that very much. And um, I've become just more kind of sensitive to that and more aware of it. And it, it just leaves me wanting something, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, I, I don't want to just know the proposition that God loved I me. Mean, I want to experience that, mm-hmm. you know, but in some, in some Christian subcultures, there's kind of like a hand waving, like, well, your feelings don't really matter and you're never really going to experience the fullness of stuff. So all you really have is the proposition and just suck it up buttercup. That's where you're at, you know? And it's like, I mean, in my life, I've just been, I don't know what it is. I don't know how I keep picking these old communities, but like, I feel like I'm surrounded by a lot of that attitude. I don't know if that's just the, the kind of people I find, or if that really is the pervasive attitude of kind of, um, maybe all of evangelicalism. I don't, I don't know. Well, I, one of the things I really like about Peterson's work is that he kind of helps fill in that experience slot because, um, I mean, I thought about this a lot before I ever heard him talk, but he gave me some words to explain it. And that is that part of the way that you experience the love of God is through experiencing life so if you're not on the adventure of life if you're Mm -hmm. not um striving for something and failing and have to strive again or um struggling with yourself to get to the place where you're willing to serve others or facing up to your fears and confronting your fears and trying to become more courageous every one of those Sticking points is the place where you have the opportunity to experience a piece of God's love, because those are the moments at which if you don't know God, you just keep stumbling through it, right? But if you know God, you can say, I can do all things through Christ who um <laughs> the verse just blew away. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then there's another verse that says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. So so in those moments when I'm struggling and I can't accomplish something, and then he fills me up and I get that joy, or he fills me up and I'm able to do the thing that he called me to do, those are little samples of his love. They're little moments when he touches me with his love. Or one of my most recent times when I just I felt God's love so intensely for like three or four weeks I was just dancing around with a big smile on my face 
was about four years ago, I took a bad fall and I landed, my hands were full. So I landed right on my forehead. And, and so my whole forehead just grew like a shelf on it. <laughs> and I, I actually think I did crack this bone in here because my eyebrows have been kind of weird ever since. But I was able to, I was alone and I was in an unfamiliar neighborhood. I was able to pick myself up off the sidewalk and get in the car and drive to the clinic before I blacked out. Wow. And, um, and there was no lasting damage, but I did have black eye and this big puffed up forehead for probably a month after that. But what it was to me was evidence of God's love because I had fallen in a place where I was right. I was behind a bunch of bushes. And if I had blacked out or been unconscious, nobody would have found me probably for a day. And I might've died from it because who knows if, you know, you lay in one place and the blood starts pooling and all that kind of thing. But I, the minute I hit the ground, I was praying, you know, Lord, be my strength. Lord, be my hope. Lord, you know, help me with this. And, and I somehow got this superhuman strength to get up off the ground, get in the car, drive to this clinic. And when I walked in the door, they said, you know, they, they brought a, a wheelchair right away. <laughs> and uh, they said, you shouldn't have been driving. I'm like, I know, I have no idea how I did it, you know, but it would, to yeah. me, it was just this sense of he was there with me at that moment. And I knew it because otherwise I would have been dead. And uh, I carried that scar as a, as a wound of honor for a long time. The scars all gone now, but, but every time I could look at myself in the mirror, I'd like, see, God loves you because <laughs> he took care of you in that moment. Well, if you're not experiencing life, if you're living with the nanny state and everybody's always doing everything for you and you never experience any hardship or any suffering or any loss, you never find out who God can be to you. And, and I think that's the great tragedy of what's happening nowadays with all the helicopter parents and, and uh, the... Well overprotection of everybody for everything you know this is another real hard turn that i would for take us for whatever it is but i was um i was reading the other day like a very short um biography of renee descartes mm -hmm. and um you know and to as best i understand he he's the philosopher who kind of started detaching really strongly the mind from everything else and just sort of saying, well, all we really have is the mind and we're not necessarily even directly perceiving things. Well, I was struck in this biography about how, <laughs> at least as it was framed by this one biographer who was rather critical of him, he had a very easy, cushy life. He'd wake up at noon. He didn't really ever work. He didn't really ever do anything productive for society. He would just kind of wake up and just live this gentlemanly life of leisure and you know even when he went into the army he didn't really do anything he would still wake up at noon and not really participate as far as we can tell and um i was just so struck by that and and just his um he never really again according to this biographer he never really had any deep connections with family or friends um you know at one point he had an affair with 
like a, a servant and had a daughter from that, but she died at the age of five. And it's, it's almost like he never lived, never truly lived and truly experienced life in some real manner. And the result was, in my opinion, this really hellish philosophy that has done great damage to our culture. Mm-hmm. You know, that, oh, I, I'm, I'm just them up here and I can't get out there. It's like, well, yeah, because that's how you experience your life mm-hmm. by not experiencing, you know? Um, Isn't he the guy also who kind of locked himself up in his room for a long time and just thought because he wanted to get to the bottom of what it was all about and so he didn't want to have any experience outside himself yeah 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 so he he wanted to he he wanted to um again as best i understand he he kind of threw out all all of his his education and like aquinas and augustine and and the greeks and was just like "Eh, i want to start from scratch what is the most fundamental thing i can know and what he eventually landed on was the only thing I can truly know is that I exist and I'm thinking. And he started trying to build a philosophy on top of that, you know, and it was, it was very um, influential for better or worse. And I think worse, you know, and yeah, there's just something about experience, direct experience. And, you know, in this little corner, it seems like a, at least partially, it's a revival of people who are understanding, you know, we need direct experience. We need a philosophy of, of direct experience. Like this, this is a can, you know, and I have to be able to understand that this is a can, you know, this isn't just random particles and I just happen to be arbitrarily experiencing it. No, it, it is a can. I don't entirely know what that means, but it is a can, you know, and it's like, that sounds so dumb, but it's so liberating to actually be able to see the world that way. And I think that's why people are drawn to, you know, Jonathan Pajot and all these all this this kind of I don't know renaissance of phenomenology or whatever is happening here mm. um, which to me is very exciting like man the world seems seen again or it's at least starting to at some level yeah I, I, Michael Sartori who's one of the guys that's on the discord server and he has a YouTube channel where he just does conversations but he also started a new channel where he's going to talk to tradesmen, people okay. who've been working a trade for many years, and he's going to try to find people who are older, who have a lot of experience with life and can share what they've learned from working this trade, which I think that's going to be fascinating because people who They're really old. know their trade, they get a lot of wisdom just from working their trade. You know, like a blacksmith knows a lot about how the world works just because of the way metal works when it's hot. Because you see all these, you know, it's like, like I said, with painting, you learn all these principles and you see how the world lays out based on that. But you can, the same thing can happen when you're learning how to knit. You just learn things about the world when you're doing something. Or if you're learning how to um, garden, you learn things about the world from that, which I think that goes back to Esther Meek's idea about how all knowing is based on a love relationship with the thing that you're knowing. So yep. like, like, you know, you're coding, you have a love relationship with that code. And that's part of what gives you insights about how to work with it. And right. that love relationship also means that that code is giving you a gift back and you're 
you're learning things from it. I know it sounds weird, but I feel like yeah. God is always giving us gifts through these things. If, if we're willing to open our hearts to them and relate to them, he gives us gifts back into it. So instead of looking yeah. at that as a burden, oh God, I've got to go back to the blacksmith shop, you know? No, that blacksmith right. shop is where you, you're learning about the world, right? Yeah, I um, when I first started watching your channel, um, it was it was the Esther Meek and Michael Polanyi stuff I was really dialed into. And I think the first time I heard her use that phrase, epistemology of love, I I I just kind of like I didn't really get it. It it, it just seemed like something kind of goofy to me that I'd see on like a, a a poster of a sunset or something. But like you know, like I, and, and that just shows how judgmental. But like the more thought about it and sat with it it's like she's really onto something like this is a real yeah. thing yeah everything is relational it's this um it's not just objective and subjective it's transjective you know the the the, the real stuff of our of our experience is in these relationships and not just my relationship with you or whatever but like yeah my relationship to the code and the code's relationship to the hardware and i mean when you really start getting into that it's like that's that's where it's all happening you know and then yeah. and that makes sense this was all created by christ who you know fundamentally when you boil it all down he, he wants to relate to us he wants the transjective and that's the the, the great good of all this well and, and let's go back to the illustration you gave of the the workers who were in the field a lot longer than the other ones and they all got paid the same mm -hmm. well they got paid the same coin okay but the workers mm -hmm. who were in the field all day they got something else out of it didn't they right i mean if you extend the story out they they were serving the master for longer they had an opportunity for the camaraderie of working together on a project. They learned something from the work that they were putting in. They were having a relationship with whatever this thing was that they were learning. They were stretching mm. themselves. They were achieving. They were finding out where their shortcomings were. And if you think about it in terms of living the Christian life, wouldn't I rather come to Christ when I'm young than wait until I'm very old? Yes, maybe if I'm very old and I come to Christ at the end or like on the cross, I slip in. But then I lost all those years that I could have had this glorious opportunity to have a relationship with him on this earth and to serve other people. So, hmm. yeah. Which is a very different way of framing it than like, man, those people that could just live whatever crazy life they want to live and then repent on their deathbed. Yeah, yeah, to be envious of that seems rather absurd when you put it in those terms. And I don't know, doesn't Paul, the Apostle Paul, say something like um, Jews will be saved first and then the Gentiles? There's, there's something about, um, and I wonder if that's kind of what he's getting at, if, if I'm even remembering that phrase correctly. That, the like, Gentile, is, is that where he's talking about the Gentiles being grafted in in Romans? It, the, what I'm thinking of does come from Romans, but I can't remember. I mean, there's something about there's a first and then a second. 
and almost like the the, the, the Jews, the, the believing Jews have a, a greater share, a greater, there is something greater. Um, I probably shouldn't even talk about it if I can't remember the, the quote, but uh, but I do wonder if it's something like what you were just talking about, where, yes, there was a much longer cultural labor. Um, so I'm going to see if I can find this passage so that we can actually look at it. Let's see. Um, this might not be the exact passage that you were talking about. For I do not want you, brothers and sisters, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. In relation to the gospel, they are enemies on your account, but in relation to God's choice, they are beloved on account of the fathers. So I don't think that's it. But just before that, he's talking about being grafted into the olive tree. Yeah, that well, whole I, chapter 11 is a very, very complicated, tough, <laughs> tough yeah, chapter. I'm, I'm, hesitant to, I'm hesitant to go into that at all. because Yeah. There's, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a whole lot there. Um, the, I, I found the phrase I was thinking of comes from uh, Romans 1. Oh, Romans 1, okay. Yeah. That would have been says, I'm not, <laughs> Yeah. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And like, I don't, I don't even know what that means, to be honest. I mean, it might not really mean much. Um, I think well, I, I mean, it certainly theory. did go first to the Jews in the Old Testament, didn't it? It had to. I mean, they, they, right? They were, they were set apart, and, um, and. What would be the word refined through all of their experiences in the wilderness and and through all of their difficulties and um, purified in many ways and and Christ came through that line, even though he also um, has a lot of aliens in his lineage, <clears throat> but mostly he comes through the line of the Jewish people. There is a good part about chapter 11. I'm just going to read this to kind of close up today because we've kind of run over time. But... Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it would be paid back to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things, and to him be the glory forever. Amen. That's chapter 11, verses 33 through 35. Unsearchable riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And, and that's what we get to experience in the adventure of life, is him sharing that 
wisdom and knowledge with us through experience. So yeah, experience is the key, I think. And, you know, that's one of the things I really love about Jordan Peterson is the way that he makes it clear that your faith is exposed by your actions. It's not that, you know, I mean, there's a whole debate in the Bible about works and faith. I mean, the whole debate about people who read the Bible between works and faith, but there's no debate, really. Um, we believe and then our belief is acted out. And, and when people look at our actions, they can tell what our belief is. Mm -hmm. So they can't tell what our belief is by looking at our head. I mean, they can't get inside our head. Just like you can't get inside even chat GPT to know how it's really working. They don't really know how that stuff is, right? But they right. can tell what comes out of it. They can see the output. Have you played with it at all yet? Uh, I have some, yeah. I, you know, <clears throat> a friend of mine is is pretty concerned. Like a, a friend of mine who's a software developer, pretty anxious about, you know, our jobs becoming replaced because of how good this stuff is getting. And he asked me, you know, how how are you dealing with the anxiety? And it's like, I don't know. I don't know why I'm still having anxiety about it. Like, whatever <laughs> whatever happens will happen, and life will go on. And the sun's going to keep rising, I think, or Christ will return. I don't know. Um, yeah, well, I, I, I think it, I think it can code, but I think it also needs somebody to prompt it as to what code to write and to prompt it as to how to refine the code and all that. Because, like, I was messing around. I, I'm having David Schindler, the author of uh, Love and the Postmodern Predicament, on on Thursday. So, in preparing for that, I've been reading his book, Love and the Postmodern Predicament, and thinking about the overlap between his work and Esther Meek because he and Esther, I think, have actually collaborated with each other on some things. They both have this idea of the epistemology of love. And then thinking about Ian McGilchrist with the right hemisphere, because I think that picture that he draws of the right hemisphere, learning from outside myself, bringing it in and then handing it over to the left hemisphere is very much like that covenant of love having the known and the unknown and all that. So I was playing around with chat GPT to see if it could give me an analysis of how those three connect. Cause I know how they connect for me, but I wanted to see if, if it could, and man, it spits it out fast, but the first go round was pretty sophomoric. So then I had right. to refine my prompt two or three times, but then by the time I refined my prompt well enough, then it came up with something that was quite brilliant, actually. Interesting. Connecting those three very deep thinkers. Yeah. So I don't think that, I mean, I think there has to be somebody who comes up with the prompts, you know, and, and, you, and you have to be knowledgeable enough yourself to look at what it comes up with to see, figure out whether it's right or not. Because the first couple of, I tried Bard and I tried Bing and both of them, I could tell right away they were just wrong. They had yeah. a sort of surface picture of what's going on, but it was a lot of pablum about love and how love and knowing and can be diversity and unity and blah, 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 you know, <laughs> it just sounded right. like, just sounded like a magazine, <laughs> but chat right. GPT actually gave me something with some meat in it after the third time. 
So. Interesting. Yeah. So it's been great, Ryan. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. We didn't talk very much about Dorothy Sayers, but oh well. <laughs> yeah. I always like the way you throw the hard questions because sometimes it really scares me. And because I mean I don't I know I don't have any answers, and so I don't I'm not pretending to have any answers, but it is good to think about those things because it forces me to come to grips with some stuff. So, yeah. Well, I hope it's not too much. No, I like thinking about it, you know, because I think today you helped me see what that story really is about with uh, the workers in the field, you know, and what it's really about when we talk about the how to shift your viewpoint so that we don't end up with resentment towards those who seem to skate by, you know, Psalm yeah. 73 is another good one. You should look that one up. Okay. Yeah. Psalm 73 is one of my favorites about that. How the wicked always seem to be prospering. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Have a great week. Talk to you soon. All right, thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.